Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. All right, hello everyone, and welcome back to the Petro Nerds Podcast. This is episode 79. We're really getting up there in the numbers, which I am pumped about. Um, so episode 79 of the Petronas podcast and um, episode 78 has not dropped, but I can tell you it is jam packed with Intel. I covered everything from OPEC to the Fed um, to the energy transition and China in depth. That's going to drop. Um, so be sure this will this be a great podcast to follow up on that. Um, but I have delighted to have a treat for you today. It is Monday, April 10th, 2023, and I am joined with two colleagues. Um, which is always fun because it's usually just another person on here or just me blabbering away. Um, so I'm joined by two folks with SPL, which is a testing and measuring largely an oil field service company. And we're going to get into exactly what SPL is. Um, but I'm joined by Andrew Parker and Dave Curtis. So they're uh, first time guests. Um, and we have not actually met in person, but we've sort of met in different ways. So thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Welcome. Uh, thank you. Awesome. So um, do you guys want to just uh, before we get into, well, I'll timestamp this real quick and then we can get into your, um, you know, your your respective profiles and everything. Um, okay, so WTI, April 10th, 2023. WTI, we're sitting at 79.90. Brent is 84.30. So we've come off a little bit off that um, 81 handle that we saw previously. Henry Hobb is still, uh, you know, just sticking around this two figure, but it's 218, so we're not in the one and change, so that's great. Dutch TTF is 1384, so really unseasonably, I mean, we're now in April, but unseasonably warm winter there. Um, and interestingly enough, and we can maybe talk about this depending on your guys' comfort level, but a 30-year yield, or sorry, 30-year mortgage is at 650, but that 10-year yield, because the jobs data last week, um, that 10-year yield has actually ratcheted up. We saw the two-year yield north of 4%, the 10-year yield, which correlates well with the 30-year mortgage, is 3.415. Um, there's a lot of talk, I think, right now about um, an uneasiness in the market on what the Fed is going to do. And we have uh, we have inflation data coming out this week. So that's also going to be really exciting, um, which I think is going to be stickier than people realize. But, you know, and now we have higher oil prices. So, you know, it's, it's just really fun. And the Fed is in a great position to just, you know, give us this soft landing. Um, and yes, that's absolutely sarcasm. So without further ado, sarcasm. <laughs> Um, Andrew and Dave, why don't you introduce yourselves and, uh, you know, your, w what your titles and, and roles are and, and a little bit of background on SPL and we can dive into this. All right. So, well, go ahead, Andrew, please. I'll, yeah, I'll kick off. Um, I'm the executive vice president of our hydrocarbons and sustainability product line here at SPL. Uh, that means I oversee all of our laboratories. So we're the largest, uh, hydrocarbon lab in the United States. We perform. Uh, compositional and physical properties testing on uh, products from the wellhead all the way through the downstream sector. And then uh, our sustainability services include Eldar stack testing and uh, some emissions data management. So that's, we're real excited about that product line that's emerging for us as measurement is in our DNA and the world is asking for more measurement. So um, I have the, the luxury of getting to uh, oversee those product lines and, and work with Dave doing it. Awesome. Yeah. Well, great introduction. Dave, how about you? I'm the uh, chief revenue officer here at SPL, which means uh, I get to play with all our different product lines, uh, the hydrocarbon and sustainability that Andrew mentioned, 
Uh, in addition, you know, we have a large field services group that's out there doing the measurement work uh, for the volumetric measurements and our uh, digital compliance team, which is doing the production allocation measurement data services, as well as our environmental laboratories and so on. I get to uh, uh, play with each one of those groups, which is great. Uh, as Andrew said, we're one of the largest energy tick providers, testing inspection, certification and compliance uh, in the U.S., independent ones anyway. And you guys are largely working with upstream companies, correct? Upstream and midstream. Okay, and midstream, because you're in, and, and, um, and you guys are, how, how old is the company? We are, next year, we will be 80 years old. Really? Well, yes. you have a pretty snappy website for being an 80-year-old company, so kudos well, to you. Um, we try and stay up to date. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that's really great. Um, and I love it because it is very, I mean, this is nerdy. Um, so you fit well on the Petronas podcast. So, because the, I mean, I know you're doing measurement stuff, and I know measurements was a big topic at the uh, at the Responsible Gas Forum that, that and that I was speaking at, that Andrew saw me speak at, or at least asked a lot of questions. Um, and asked a lot of questions. Um, but so I'm keen on it, understanding these measurement things, but also your hydrocarbon lab, you know, when you're talking about you, what exactly you're testing for hydrocarbons. And Andrew, you have an interesting background um, on that, but t tell us exactly for the average listener, what are, we te what are you all testing when it comes to hydrocarbon, like the actual testing of hydrocarbons? And what, what's that, what are those testing and measurements then used for? Yeah, so I think like our end users range from, you know, the traditional measurement and allocation groups within, you know, companies to uh, EHS and engineering, right? So, um, you know, natural gas, NGLs, condensates, crudes, uh, you know, any product like that, that someone wants to know what's the composition, maybe they need to determine the BTU, or they need to know what the VOCs and the HAPs are or the gas to oil ratios or the densities, right? For uh, permitting tank emissions. Um, so, so really everything from settlements through regulatory, um, our, our data is getting used. We generate 350,000 data points a year and uh, it's getting used for, for all those types of, of applications, facilities engineering, uh, pipeline integrity, I could go on, right? So really our end users are broad, they're diverse, they're using it for uh, a multitude of, of applications within the oil and gas universe. And that's largely, so I mean, I, we haven't talked about this in, in super in depth on this podcast, but I, I have worked extensively in, on refining and midstream and it's this underappreciated sort of aspect of the market, I think of understanding it, like crude types, which is very uh, obviously, the, the crude, all crude is not created equal and is not the same. But we have a, predominantly a lot of light sweet crude in the U.S. Um, but that I think a lot of folks don't even know what light sweet crude even means. But it has that you know higher API gravity, which tends tends to not always correlate with you know depth and thermal maturity with the rock. And so in places like the Eagleford, which I think is just a, a incredibly awesome geologic play, um, as you you know deeper more thermally mature, you get all these different windows. So, and that's really important if you're say exporting crude abroad and refiners or even local refiners, but refiners need to understand what types of crude you're getting. So they do need to know that API gravity, um, how much sulfur, all, all the, all the, and all the millions of other variables that you're measuring of not just those two simple things, um, API gravity and sulfur content, which we tend to think of, but all those measurements I assume matter a lot for not just pipelines, but the actual storage tanks, um, who's buying that, how they're priced, how they're discounted, and and then or if they're getting a premium, if they're getting a discount, and then obviously the end user, the refiner, or the 
the refiner who's purchasing it needs to know all this information so they can take it into the refinery and process it. It's it's funny, right? Because like I think a lot of what we do is like very niche to oil and gas and like almost an afterthought, but it's so critically important, right? Like you think of like you know measurement and the economics of these companies. Um, it really what we do is it, it helps them with the cash register and understanding those yields, right? It blows my mind. You know, we come across companies that are just so diligent at watching their measurement and they know exactly what's in their product and they know exactly how much of it they're producing and their errors are, you know, their lost unaccounted for quantities are small. And then you have other companies that just don't seem to care. And it, it always blows my mind um, the amount of money that, you know, they're, they're probably losing by not paying attention to it because it's not just BTU settlements at a custody transfer meter in the pocket, right? It's refinery scale processing of crude oils that, you know, goes, goes all the way up the chains, uh, has, has huge, huge dollars tied to it. And, and we can do that. We can actually, we can take oil and do a full refinery simulated distillation and tell them exactly how that those, those hydrocarbon components are going to break out, you know, through whatever uh, grade they're looking for. So um, we do we do that all day. Um, we have 13 labs in the U.S. We have a fuels and lubricants division that does quite a bit of jet fuel and gasoline testing. Um, and we've got uh, a bunch of environmental labs now that um, are helping customers with uh, other environmental aspects uh, outside of oil and gas as well. And, and another important piece, um, important part of that, Andrew, is also going back upstream. So yes, you know, all those refineries, they need to know what's going in them. They can make the decision, but somebody contributed to that. You know, there's thousands of wells that are contributing to that stream that are going into that refinery. So each one of those mineral interest owners, each one of those midstream companies that are receiving it need to know what their contribution is and how it got there. And so determining what that is and how you get it back to the wellhead to know that that person is owed this much for their products is a big piece of it as well, not just in the measurement, but in the allocation part. So uh, it yeah, becomes it's, important. It's a very, um, it is very nerdy, sort of probably underappreciated aspect of the business, business that everyone has to know exactly what they're getting um, and where it's coming from and how that works. So everyone's paid appropriately. So that is very fascinating. We can definitely touch on the you know, we can definitely touch on a little more of the business aspects and your guys' perspective in terms of um, what's going on within the market. I would love to hear that. And certainly on the on the environmental side, are you guys measuring on are you guys measuring methane emissions and in that space of this, you know, the hyperactivity and sensitivity on um, the every upstream provider lowering their um, the scope one and scope two emissions? I assume you're playing a pr uh, or at least you're entered and into that foray at the moment. Yeah, yeah, we're we're building out our our Eldar and Stack capabilities. Um, we we brought on a few guys as of last year and actively building out that practice. Yep. Okay, cool. And it, where is that? Where is that have most concentrated in the market? Where yeah. would you say is the? So right now it's in Texas and Louisiana. That's where most of our activity actually. Um, we we've got bites coming from the Bakken and the DJ here in Colorado. It's it's a bit different, I would say, especially with respect to, you know, the regulatory environment and, and how people look at, you know, traditional LDAR versus like continuous monitoring and what the state's asking them to do. So, um, but the Bakken is, is great. Permian, huge, obviously Eagleford, uh, Haynesville. Um, we're opening up in the Marcellus pretty soon. We're going to have a flare camera yeah. there. So um, yeah, really excited about how that 
you know, that really fits into the DNA of our business. You know, one of, one of the cool things about that is, you know, we have 250 technicians that are out touching our client sites every day. They're hitting five to six sites. And so each one of those that we outfit with an Eldar camera can go out there and perform that test and really maximize the benefit for the customers. So rather than having to send out different groups each time to do different work, we can capture it all in one run, save them money, get their compliance data and their settlement data all at the same time. Okay. All right. Very cool. Very cool. Well, we can, and we can, maybe we'll, maybe we'll touch on a little more of that. We'll see, we'll see where this podcast goes, but you guys are welcome. As I said before, you're welcome to interrupt and interject and ask questions, but there's a few things I, so overview for, 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 um, listeners and folks, there's a few topics I would like to cover, which is, you know, um, I definitely want to talk a bit about the responsible gas forum. I know that's Chatham house rules. Um, but I always tell people I'm always on the record, so I don't mind, you know, everything that I said, which is a little provocative in a group like that. Um, and then uh, I would like to, obviously, I want to talk about the oil market. I mean, I haven't, uh, we've had a pretty wild ride in just a week and a day of oil prices um, from, you know, the OPEC only announced their their cuts just a week ago um, on Sunday. So we've had, uh, we went from 69 bucks on St. Patrick's Day to 80 bucks, and we've been hanging at this 80, 81, now we're at 79. Um, obviously, that, the only reason we're dipping down to 79 right now is because we have um, pressure that the the thought that we're going to have a higher inflation rate and that the Fed's probably going to, not even the higher inflation rate is more of the job number, that the Fed's going to probably raise rates. The Fed was going to have to raise rates anyway, but, you know, the market's going to do what the market's going to do and poorly interpret things. Um, and then I think, you know, there's a couple things of, I, I think, the overall business sentiment. I love to get, uh, when I have a guest on the podcast, and especially service companies, is really, how do you see the state of business right now? I mean, I think, you know, inflation is a huge piece. Labor is always important. And I have always have guests on the podcast when it's, it's inflation, it's labor, um, it's have you had any pains or stickiness? Obviously, you're an 80-year-old business, so it's a little bit different um, in this space. But, I mean, you know, what's your vantage point, obviously, on the upstream? I know that... Um, we are I, just on, and I missed this on, on Friday, but I mean, Friday, the rumor came out, or not the rumor, the, the established rumor, and um, with the Wall Street Journal, that it wasn't just a rumor, that Exxon was actually talking to, the, both parties said that they were talking to each other, Exxon was talking to Pioneer Natural Resources, which we all know in this space, if you know Exxon or Pioneer Natural Resources, um, they are mega players, um, and Pioneer Natural Resources is technically, I mean, they are an independent oil company, they are pure play, um, Permian producer, one of the biggest and first uh, big Permian companies, and that would be a monstrous acquisition. So, you know, if that begins, um, and that'll be an, there'll be an, I've been hearing talks and people have been asking about this for a while, but usually when it starts, others follow suit. Um, and this is on the back of these companies having so much cash, uh, probably wanting to buy inventory, not getting rewarded by the shareholders no matter what they do. Um, so, hey, what, might, not, might as well buy these companies because um, these oil companies, as much as they won't tell you publicly that oil is going to be around forever, they do know that. Um, so they're going to buy up other companies and they're going to have this production in their back pocket, which would massively increase you know, Exxon's production profile. But it has significant impacts for the service sector, for activity, uh, for what's going on in the, in, just in the state of the market. So that's just something to throw out there. But I don't know where you want to start. If we want to start with, uh, maybe we can talk. I think gas is a nice place, the responsible gas form. So Dave, Andrew, you're welcome to, you know, bring up if this is a good place to start. We can, you know, talk about natural gas, this responsible gas form, and then we can, you know, get into the market and how you guys are seeing things. Let's let's talk about the pain uh, institute uh, because for a minute, because I, I, yeah, first time, I guess I had, I'd known of you, right, but got to see you in action and you were fiery. 
right? <laughs> and the, the poor panelists up there talking about uh, their continuous monitoring uh, technologies and, and, you know, painting this perfectly, uh, you know, wonderful picture of the world and, and uh, emissions uh, technology. And there you are to kind of give them a dose of reality, right? And like, I start with like, what does it even mean? So there's it, it, the Gas Processors Association, GPA Midstream, um, I'm, I'm leading a work group trying to add some definition around like, what does responsibly sourced gas mean? What does certified natural gas mean? What does differentiated natural gas mean? Like people use them interchangeably, but to me, and this they're was a, all this a little was a bit big different. Topic, just to, don't mean to cut you off, but that was, so the responsible gas uh, symposium was a thing at the paint at uh, school mines with yes. the Paint Institute, which is the policy arm. And there was a lot of, you know, Chatham House rules, so we're not going to say who was saying what, but there were, it was a pretty wide swath of regulatory folks of and, and industry folks um, in the room and, and, and some pretty, some really good panels, actually. Um, but there was a lot of talk. I mean, there seemed to be sort of an overwhelming thread of this measurement of the, bill, you know, measuring actual, um, and it, this gets back to CO2 emissions, but measuring the emissions from, um, from natural gas and sort of certifying that. And then, I, you know, no one really talked about the end user, the hope, but the hope is obviously the, hey, um, Europe's going to really want my natural gas more because I've measured it. And, you know, I, so that, and I'm not faulting anyone for being in that business, but I do think there's a bigger sort of world out there in terms of the reality of the, the four BCF a day of gas that's declined from six BCF a day to four BCF a day in Colorado and the, you know, immense regulatory hurdles in Colorado that, Calder is looking a lot more like California for declining production. Um, so given that we were both there and you don't, we don't have to speak to other people's, but yeah, you were seeing the same stuff I was. And it was just a, a very interesting sort of characterization of a problem um, and, and a, um, a solutions to a problem that don't necessarily, I mean, I don't even know how much natural gas currently um, in Colorado is being exported. Uh, you'd have, to, I mean, exported abroad, which was a statistic that was not brought up. Yeah, and I, I heard that part of the reason P66 was interested in DCP was kind of providing that Gulf Coast access through the, their pipeline Absolutely. system. Yeah. And um, but yeah, I mean, to, for me, one of the, the big takeaways was was Chenier. Chenier doesn't buy any of it, right? And I thought that was really interesting as the largest purchaser of natural gas in the United States. Um, the work that they're doing with you know, um, QMRV and, uh, making sure that, you know, the data is there to, to back up the product. Um, I thought that was a really interesting statement that, Hey, we don't, we don't pop eight BCF a day or something like that. And we don't, we don't buy a single bit of responsibly sourced gas yet, but that was really yeah. interesting. And that's Can more, I that's, Sorry. Yeah, go ahead, please. I want to ask a question because I wasn't here. And, and Trish, you, you triggered something for me. You were saying that they were talking a lot about measurement. Uh, Andrew and I have spoke to a lot of companies that these companies are the ones that want to be the certifiers. They're the ones that want to provide the quote unquote data to make sure so that folks can say, listen, we've got responsibly sourced gas. But the one common theme that we found across it was they really didn't care about empirical measurement. They wanted to have some magic formula that would, then you could say, oh, now I'm responsible. Do, what were you hearing in this form? When you say measurement, were they really talking about true empirical measurement of the emissions to show that they were reducing it, to show that they were low carbon? 
Yeah, they were. I mean, so I mean, there was an overwhelming. There was a f and there was a few panels on this that I believe that that's public knowledge. But there was a few panels on this to to talk about the really granular, nerdy stuff of of actual measuring it. Now, I think there's probably a lot of debate on and in that uh, that whole deep space of me I assume there's a great amount of debate in the whole deep space of measuring and that certification. And I know, I mean, I know from just the I work with a lot of service companies, and I can tell you, I had a lot of phone calls uh, between 2020 and 2021 in two years of every company trying to get in on this. And, you know, whatever green it was, they were just grabbing it and running with it. Um, they didn't even know what it was. They were just going to get into it. I think the scope one and scope two thing is certainly something that, you know, is people are talking about it. The problem is it's, it's a lot like talking about the energy transition and ESG broadly is that th there isn't a definition until it's for forced upon people. And Colorado does have, you know, much higher, um, we have much higher air quality standards in terms of actual drilling and producing. Um, but the actual, I think, scope one and scope two emissions from the wellhead, which is something that, you know, Diamondback was one of the, uh, I mean, Diamondback and others were pretty early on talking in their earnings call about, you know, flyovers and, and measuring. And not, not saying that other companies weren't already doing that, but they were vocal pretty early on in, in terms of a public earnings call space about talking about this. Because, um, and this was becoming trendy. So I, I, I get a little bit hesitant on this stuff because it's kind of like where everybody hypes themselves up. And so one company talks about it, another company talks about it, and everybody thinks we got to do this. And the question is, are they, what are they actually measuring? What are they certifying? And the problem I have with it is that I need sort of from a market standpoint of knowing where these molecules are going to end up going. And if they have a market is that who has said, I, ha I need the certification and who's qualified this and demanded it. And ha does it have the pipeline and all the access and, to get there, does it have the infrastructure to actually get there? Because if you're certifying, if you if everyone in Colorado certified every single molecule that came out as whatever, we hit these scope one, scope two emissions targets, and we're the cleanest natural gas um, in the world. Um, are are we certain that those four BCF a day can get from Colorado to the Gulf Coast um, and to Europe? Um, and that's not, you know, th there's a lot in that. That's just like transporting crude oil, and you have to actually develop a market for it. So I, I know the Europeans have are, have been talking more about having extra certificate, you know, having certification for this. I am also pretty pissed at that because, you know, they weren't requiring certification for clean molecules from, from Russia. Um, but now that they're not getting it from Russia, they re are requiring us to do it. And I think that's, I'm not saying that the industry shouldn't do a better job and, 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 um, and reduce their emissions and things that they can improve. Absolutely. But that's just uh, an energy secure, I mean, that's just ridiculous that you're okay getting it from a, um, <laughs> a foreign power that has no rule of law and has invaded, the fact that you're okay with this, this structure, but now you're penalizing the countries that actually show the data. And Europe has been talking about this for a couple of years. I know France was calling our gas dirty. They said they were never gonna take it. Um, and this was you know, a few years ago, well before the, the war in Ukraine. Um, and that created, there was a lot of talk about how they were actually measuring this, right? That they were measuring U.S. natural gas based on, um, or me doing these, these methane emissions and everything, based on some broad calculations. Now, there's a lot of debate on, you know, if you get more granular, is, is our data worse? Is it better? But, um, I mean, methane emissions are one thing. And from my understanding, you can reduce those pretty, you know, it's pretty easy for new production to reduce their emissions lickety-split. Um, and actually not so hard for even older production to reduce their emissions pretty quickly as well. Um, from my understanding, it's some of the older, older, older stuff that you really have to get in there and reduce this. But I have a feeling that, you know, technology grows pretty quickly and that when you ask 
companies to do something, I've grown up around this business, and when you ask operators to do something, you just tell them how to do it, you know, this is what you have to do, and usually these very, um, you know, smart engineers, they figure out how to way to do it pretty quickly, and they just comply. So I just think we haven't defined this. I don't know if that answered your question, that's a little long-winded, but I'd love to know your response. No, no, I, th I think that was great, and I think you hit on a lot of it. Again, I share your annoyance at, you know, how we're viewed versus other countries. Uh, that's bothersome. And, and I agree with you. We've seen them. I worked for one of the big uh, major independents. And, you know, if they're asked to do something, they find a way to get it done. I do think there's some limitation in that. You know, there's big right. companies now that are buying up a ton of the low producing older systems that there's just not a lot of dollars around those. So they don't have a lot of money right. to put in them. And so that's where the problem's going to lie. It's like you said, new production's no problem. Fairly recent production's no problem. It's all that way old uh, production that's just dribbling out a little bit of gas and a little bit of oil that they just don't have the economics to put into it. That's going to be the holdup. Right. And, you know, I, and again, I am hesitant on, on pushing the, the, you know, pushing these guys too far is because cumulatively stripper wells and all these, uh, you know, a barrel day here, a barrel day there, 200 barrels a day here, 200 barrels a day there, they add up pretty quickly. And so I, I am, you know, I know listeners have to be uh, questioning where I stand on the climate stuff. And it, I, I am essentially at the point where, um, I, you know, the U.S. killing themselves to do all this, unless we address all the emissions elsewhere, it's, it's, it's really all for naught. So, you know, I am very hesitant to be advocating to impose very strict regulations on measuring stripper wells in this country, which would impose, you know, we, we've already seen in Colorado the push to actually, you know, plug and abandon, you know, plug these wells. Um, not, I'm saying not before the time, but there are a lot of companies in Colorado that have plugged their, you know, their vertical production. And I think that vertical production, I think all this production, we need to be thinking from an energy security standpoint of, you know, my dad pumped vertical wells for my, my, almost my entire, has pumped my entire life and before. Um, and so you have to just be very co cognizant of, you know, when you're taking stuff offline, what that actually means, especially in the name of the environment when if you're not actually doing anything and you're playing whack-a-mole. So I think that's extremely important to think about when we're taking production offline. Um, that doesn't mean that we, we can't sort of uh, work toward t technological advances in solving that. Uh, but I do realize from, as you said, that this seems to be the simplest thing is that some of the oldest, oldest stuff the economics simply aren't there, whereas the newer stuff it is. Um, at the end of the day, I'd still like to see the data of if we got rid of every single drop in, in production in the U.S., what, what would the impact be um, in terms of the total global output of methane emissions? Yeah. Agreed. Andrew, thoughts? I feel like I could go a million different directions with that. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, you know, on the, the whole thing on these, these stripper wells and these, these low-flow wells, I think, you know, there are, like you were pointing out, a lot of unintended consequences with forcing people to do things that are uneconomical or not practical with, with some of these assets. And, you know, I think back to two years ago, Shell, I believe it was Shell, lost a lawsuit in Dutch court that they were basically mandated by Dutch law to cut their CO2 emissions in half, I think which is right. not a practical ask in 10 years of a company like that. And so what you're seeing, I think a number of companies do now is dump those assets. They're saying, well, I can't do anything about it. So I'm going to get those emissions off my books because I'll look like I did something, but 
what they're really doing is playing a missions hot potato with a producer who ultimately is going to operate those resources less responsibly and has less capital to do, uh, you know, something with those assets than someone like Shell, right? BP did it with Hillcorp in Alaska, yep, I believe, so you're as well. It. And so, so it's a missions hot potato. So, you know, what's the what's the benefit to what you're asking? And and the problem is all three of us would get labeled as anti-clean energy or anti-climate change people. It's I don't think the three of us at all have those sentiments. I'm pro-environment. Dave's pro-environment. Pretty sure you are, Tricia. But, you know, people want to play this labeling game when uh, you don't want to conform to the status quo and so the narrative you- right now that's being written. Can you tell us in, in the business, how is that actually playing out? So that's been something, you know, initially in this podcast I talked pretty extensively about is that, you know, when BP sold off Hillcorp and everybody's selling off these assets or, you know, shoving, you know, sell, selling them off to other companies um, and largely it's private companies that are taking this. And, you know, we saw the rise of the private operator, you know, in, in just an incredible story of, of private operator, that behavior and just the willingness to lean in on higher prices or prices are riding up since since um, negative oil prices, basically, since that moment they turned positive, everybody, you know, the private operators were there um, and chomping at the bit and going to town on production. We've seen them come, you know, we, we, obviously gas prices have impacted that significantly of, of privates on the, in the gas space and, and you know, wildcatting for gas is no longer something that people want to do at $2 an MCF. Um, but on the oil side, this rebound in oil prices, any any softness that you had, sort of these privates are, are back, it's, it, it's going to be appealing again. And we did see some softness, I think, in around September when things were when softening out. You know, you see the rig count react really quickly from the privates. But, you know, something at the symposium and, and something, some comments, some conversations I was having was, you know, in the Permian Basin, you have a mix of operators, right? Of You have a ton of private operators and you have a ton of public operators. And so the incentives for both these different companies are very, very different. And now, especially when you have energy transition and ESG and you have these public operators just have a unique differentiated set of pressures that they did not have years ago, even though they're rolling in cash and prices are good and they can produce all this stuff. Um, so from your standpoint, from a business standpoint, in terms of, and maybe not you, I mean, you guys specifically, but if you see overall, from actually, uh, from the measurement side and actually wanting to get ahead of this scope one, scope two, is it more privates or is it more publics? Um, and who, whose willingness to do it, to adapt to this? Because I would I agree with you that Hillcorp and others, um, I mean, BP was probably lying through their teeth when they said they had the lowest emissions in the world in Russia, which clearly was, that's just ridiculous. And they couldn't prove that, but they said that in an earnings call when they were having this debate um, well before the Ukraine stuff. Um, But yeah, now, I mean, forget, no one has tracking emissions in Russia because they let go of all their assets. It's just gone. So we forget about that. But I mean, are you, you, your business right now, are you saying how, how, what does it look like for publics and privates in this particular space? So I'll, I guess I can start and I'll let Dave, you, you can piggyback off that. I mean, it, I think with the publics, they're being, they're trying to be proactive, but also work through the internal bureaucracy right now when it comes to dealing with how they go about measuring, reporting, and, and ultimately being held accountable by the shareholder as well as the general cons, you know, consuming public. I think the privates at least from my perspective, have been quicker to say, um, and, and, there are, and there are privates that simply just don't seem to want to do anything until they get slapped with a fine or get caught. But, you know, they're the ones that are, are quicker to outsource to a company and say, you know, 
take this headache off my plate, um, take care of it. And, uh, and I can go on with my day. Um, because they don't have to worry about some of the public facing pressures that I think right. are mounting on public companies, Dave. And no, I, 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 I sorry, no, go ahead. Right, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, Dave, I want to hear you go. You have that. As you say, I, th I think you're spot on. I think you're starting to see a little bit of a change there. So as the pressures have been ramping down just a little bit, I think people are seeing the pendulum is going to, is starting to swing back and they're not going to have all this on them. You know, the, desire for, uh, you know, profitability versus trying to, you know, for lack of a better term, greenwash what they're doing. Uh, right. I think we're going to start swinging back on the publics as well as the privates. But uh, like Andrew said, the privates have been more willing to offload that to, uh, to somebody, let them take care of it and then get on with their day. I think that was spot on. And, and I'm guessing the big, you know, a big public company um, isn't necessarily, I mean, this is some, part of this is something they would, would want to do in-house. And even some big independents, I'd imagine, is something that they either have been working on this on their own tech and they may want to do this in-house. And I do agree. I mean, I think bureaucracy, if you've ever dealt with government or a large oil company, you understand it's very hard to get things done quickly. Um, whereas it's, I mean, I'm, I'm a small business, so I know it's a lot easier to work with private companies because I can, I can talk to the CEO, I can find out if they have the money, if they're going to write the check, whereas it's a lot harder to do that in a, in a bigger business. So I would, um, I think you, you make a great point is that they're probably large bureaucratic and they just have to, getting things through the, the works is difficult and getting outsiders in is, is always tricky. Um, and everything's slow. So, but I do think that's interesting for, from an, a broader market perspective. Of, I think, I mean, if you're listening to the market and you're li reading the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, or you know, Bloomberg or CNBC, you would think that everybody just turned overnight and that we're just measuring everything. We've just solved this problem, and we've reduced our emissions. And I don't think that's necessarily the case. But I also am a little bit, as you said, you mentioned greenwashing, Dave, and I think that the companies have to be a cognizant as well, given that they these are largely engineers. They know what they're doing in terms of production consumption and i mean oxy the headline today was the oxy's that i believe wall street journal's headline was oxy is sucking carbon from the air so they can produce more oil um so i mean the fact that the, this is the these are the statements that i mean if you look at the actual co2 emissions from all the aggressive plans by excel and all the other utility companies eia has done some great job on this their emissions reduction is very, very little. And that's from pulling coal-fired power plant out, de you know, getting them out of the grid as quickly as they can, shoving renewables in. They still haven't been able to decarbonize. And I'm curious if that's something that some operators are seeing as well. If they're going to start when the street's going to say, hey, well, what have you done? They're going to say, oh, well, we dropped a smidgen. But that smidgen, I mean, is probably very little. And U U.S. oil and gas production um, doesn't contribute as a t the production aspect I believe from a CO2 emissions perspective um, is, is 1% of US total emissions. Now, methane I know is a different, is a trickier and different story, but I'm just wondering if there, if there may be a reality check of, hey, these numbers might not sound good because we haven't reduced them as much as we thought we would, or we're worried how that will look to the street. So just real quick, I mean, if people think carbon capture technologies are gonna be used to suck CO2 out of the air and reverse climate change, um, which feels like more than not, I talk to people and they feel like, oh yeah, no, like, oh, carbon capture, we'll just, we'll just take it out of the air and, and it will be fine. Like, 
definitely not the case. I think the narrative on CCS has probably been lost a little bit. But, you know, on data and reporting, like, you know, I think the regulatory ask and the public expectation versus what is possible right now is not aligned, right? And like, right. you know, there there are some like programs like the, the EPA's greenhouse gas reporting program that, you know, is very much a regimented, everyone does it the same way. But for a lot of these ESG and total emission inventory rollups, there is a there is still a sizable disconnect in reporting standards and how company A versus company B reports, you know, rolls up and characterizes and reports what emissions factors are you using relative to measure data. Um, I think it makes it really hard right now for us to have an apples to apples conversation about, you know, these inventories. I think that 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 really is tripping a lot of people up. Yeah, I, I agree. And that's also why why I, I just tell people it's not to pot it's you know, companies can do what they want and you can always, you know, bettering and, and doing things is fine. But I just caution of when you start going down this line of how far you go with it and then it's crude oil production. And then it's, um, then it's, you know, when you give a massive cookie, they want a glass of milk. And so, you know, oil companies have been, and gas companies have been very clear that we're okay with scope one and scope two. I mean, I don't necessarily think they should be necessarily, but they're not okay with scope three emissions. Well, the folks that are asking for scope one and scope two emissions are also asking for scope three emissions, which is your end user emissions, which is driving the car down the road and the, you know, the tail pipe emissions of that crude oil. Um, there's a great, and I talked about this last podcast, but the JP Morgan report on their um, energy transition paper was actually, it, the data in it is phenomenal. I, I disagree with the cover of it and their, their initial two pages on how they characterize the energy transition in adolescence. Um, I, I don't think it's in adolescence. I think it's, it's, it's pretty much on life support. Um, but I, I disagree with that characterization and that push. Um, but the data in it is really, really good. And so they talk a ton about um, they do talk about carbon capture. They hit on every major thing, and they have really, really good charts to show it. Um, and they basically, I, the whole point is things are not aligned, right? The, the ability to put this into place um, is going to be very, very difficult, um, if, if not impossible. They don't come out and say, hey, this is impossible. They let you draw their own conclusion pretty quickly w from their, their data and charts. But it's a lot of the stuff that, that folks look at. So I, I think it's just one of those things from an energy security standpoint, I think about is if you end up starting to, my point is you end up, uh, if oil companies start doing this or they start moving around their crude oil, and I know Oxy's and, and a few others have dabbled in that where they're you know, selling their crude oil directly to United and then you get on the United plane and they're bragging about their lower emissions crude oil. I mean, the reality is in a 100 million barrel a day market, this is drop in the bucket. And again, if US production, if 1% of our CO2 emissions are from US oil and gas production, I don't think it's really moving the needle here. So um, you have to just, we have to just be careful. And I think that we export between three and 4 million barrels a day crude oil. So we have to be cautious about, you know, how much we don't want to restrict that oil on the water or that's going to impact, you know, the price of crude oil globally. And um, countries need this crude oil to just stabilize the market. And the same thing goes for gas of how critically, you know, to me, especially the name of that forum was responsible gas. And it's so critical to me. And I believe I said uh, on my panel very loudly that responsible gas is, is getting every damn molecule we can out of the ground in the U.S. and getting on the water and exporting it. Um, because that's that's responsible gas. So that doesn't mean you do this crazy willy-nilly and you have problems. And I believe in safety and management and everything um, and doing this environmentally friendly way. But it means that you have to be conscious that where these regulations are from and if they're intended to um, help the business, enable the business, or prevent the business. Um, and that's just reality of 
politics. Um, a lot of this stuff is not to enable the business, it's to hold it back. Yeah, the, uh, you know, one of the things you, that you said there is whether or not it's trying to hurt it or help it. Um, we have the pleasure of working with a lot of government agencies in development of their standards. And what we hear behind the scenes is these folks have never faced uh, the pushback that they have like they are now. They have a lot of folks that it's totally agenda-based in how they're approaching the regs that are being written. And instead of trying to work to find a place that will work for both government and industry, they want to push right. as far as they can, which is more about, I apologize, for hurting the industry than it is for trying to find something that is responsible, does work well, does provide us with the numbers that we need, and allows us to produce in a responsible manner. That's not the driving force, it appears. Right, and I think you see that. I mean, and, and I encourage people to look into this because this is not this isn't just uh, free talking. This is the this is supported by the politics in Colorado. I mean, SB one eighty one was legislature that was pushed through Colorado. Um, the voters in Colorado voted down Proposition one twelve, which was an aggressive setback measure to prevent uh, two thousand feet from a house to prevent, which would have effectively really reduced drilling and completion activity in Colorado uh, because it was 2,000 feet away from homes. A lot of this geology tends to be actually, you know, it's close to urban areas. It's just a reality situation. Um, good or bad, it, it's what it is. Now, Proposition 112 was defeated. Um, however, when Jared Polis came into came into office, you know, he made it very clear in, in, in his interviews and very, he's making it abundantly clear now how he feels about natural gas. And I know how everybody, everybody says he's a bipartisan guy, but uh, I don't care if he says he is, he also says he gas is, is unreliable, uh, which is a pretty damning thing to say. But I think politically, SB 181 was shoved through, and that was essentially the same thing as Proposition 112. We've actually, there's been studies done on the reduction of drilling completion activity in Colorado because of the slowdown in permits. So SB 181, CO, Colorado Oil and Gas Commission have changed their, um, the way they permit oil and gas wells. They took it's no longer a business. And I found that really, really interesting to think about of um, whether you agree with it or disagree with it, it's politically motivated. And so they basically taken in politics um, into that permitting process. And now it's no longer about, you know, permitting oil and gas wells. It's about, um, it's about the environmental side of this. So that, that rains the day and it's, it's significantly reduced the amount of permits that are approved. And so, um, and I think everybody in that process will tell you it's political because that's what they, this is the politics of the day. Um, and that's just, that's just fact. But the problem with that is there's not a lot of engineers that were part of SB 181. There weren't, um, and there are not a lot of engineers that are part of these big political movements for the energy transition for ESG. And so the practicalities and the implementation of this stuff um, is simply not realistic. Um, and so that's why I, I, and I've been trying to bring this up quite a bit on the podcast, but um, I, and I tell people this in person, you know, especially in, in pretty wide ranging groups, like, like the Responsible Gas Forum and others, is that this industry isn't necessarily anti all this stuff. It's just that right. there ha tends to be a lot of it very intelligent, thought-provoking, you know, thoughtful people in this industry. When you give them a problem, they go solve it. And as I did the day Biden came into office, I'm ripping through data and looking at everything and looking at these plans and and studying it. And they seem nearly impossible from a physics, you know, physics standpoint. And so folks in the industry look at the CO2 emissions. And all you have to do is start studying CO2 emissions and looking at it globally. And you realize that ours, our CO2 emissions have been declining and China's have been rising and India's have been rising. And so so 
it's really a, a disheartening argument to have of, okay, well, what more can we do? Of, oh, sure, certainly there's more that can be done. But if we go down the path of Europe, it's, it, that's a completely different story and that's gonna be a mess. Uh, but this is really vulnerable from an energy security standpoint, national security, economic security. Um, and so I think it is, it is deeply political and that's something that people just have to be honest with themselves about. Um, it doesn't mean that you can't have a, a thoughtful conversation, but some of this stuff is you know, ruled by politics, not, um, you know, not reality. I was I was coming home from uh, from Dubai last year, and you know, yeah, it, it's an you know, it, it feels like the conversation's emotional, right? And there's no, uh, I forget the saying, no logical argument that can beat an emotional argument. And for a lot of people now, it has become emotional, and and people are, I think, generally recklessly ignorant to things that are going on beyond our borders, and. I don't even think me working in the industry, being someone who has an appreciation and deep understanding of climate and how climate mechanics work, coming back from Dubai, it was a 1 a.m. flight and I'm, you know, wide awake. It's 2.30 in the morning. We're an hour in and I look out my window and it looks like the sun's coming up. And I'm like, man, that is freaking weird. Like it's 2.30 in the morning. Why is the sun coming up over? And then it, it dawned on me, we were approaching the South Iraqi oil fields, Basra. Yep. And it wasn't the sun. It was the glow of some of the biggest flares I have yep. ever seen in my life. I mean, and That's not just story. one or two of, not just one or two of them, like hundreds of like, 10 story flares. I mean, you're 40,000 feet up and you're just looking down and you, you can count individual flares cause they're so damn big. And it hit home for me, the true scale of the problem, right? Like every environmentalist should go see what is going on in places like Iraq and then come back and give the U S industry a gigantic hug. That's a, that's a really good point. And I think that's, and it's something people talk about, but they always say, well, you know, the U.S. needs to lead. And it's like, well, the U.S. has, is leading. And the problem is that when you demonize the countries like the U.S. and Canada, and Canadian U.S. fans have always done this, of when they give you the emissions data, I mean, Canada was always, I, I, I you know, studied the Canadian U.S. fans, um, was very fascinated by it, and, but they were very forthcoming with, with their emissions from, from, mined bitumen and from you know bitumen produced from sag d and in situ and, and the stuff that's actually they're producing from under the ground with steam assisted gravity drainage um they were very forthcoming with that data and i thought well the more forthcoming they are the more damning it is because nigeria doesn't nigeria flares all their gas they do not give you the emissions data on that um we know iraq flares all their gas um we know that i mean there's a problem in Iran and Iraq for gas. They need natural gas. We know that the Saudis are going after their the Jafar Basin, the unconventional stuff, is largely about gas. Because if these countries, and this is amazing to think about, folks, where you find oil, you tend to find gas. I mean, it's just just uh, shocking. But that's this shocking. Is what happens. And when you produce oil, water comes up, gas comes up, stuff comes up with it. And in the U.S., we have so much damn 120 BCF a day of natural gas production because it's associated. Well, guess what? And in these other parts of the world, they also have associated production. We just don't see it because they never built the infrastructure. Because unlike crude oil, you can't put it in a truck and you can't put it in a tank. You have to pipe this. And you have to, I mean, natural gas is, you have to compress it. You have to handle it appropriately and you have to move it to places. I mean, most parts, when I was in Saudi Arabia in 20... 17 
they did not have running, they don't have piped running water. They have a truck that's going into their houses and filling water on top of the house. If you are in Saudi Arabia, and Saudi Arabia, by the way, the one telling us, you know, doing their peace deal with Iran, backed by China, and um, saying that they're now going to be the finance hub of the world, um, and their lead, they got their 2030 vision and everything. This is a country in Riyadh, in the center of the, of the country, the capital, where they don't have flowing water. Again, it's a desert, and there's issues with that. But if they don't have flowing water, you can understand that it's hard to build natural gas pipelines, and they haven't done that, even though it's in their benefit to do so. So, um, yeah, measuring, we don't measure all this stuff from elsewhere. That's why it's really important to think about, you know, the important, that's why I pull it all the way back and say the importance of producing molecules in um, oil and gas in democratic countries where you have rule law, you have this transparency, you have this data, and you can actually do something. Now, whether or not we're going to change the world, you know, from a climate standpoint and the weather by doing um by reducing aggressively reducing our emissions on production that may be another story um that doesn't mean it's you know i should poo poo people for doing it if that's that's what you want to do but it is important to think about the economics of it and does it impact production level so uh, that's a flares and um in in iraq that's a really really good story dave follow-up comments nope uh you no. know it's it's the go the ahead, ahead. the 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 you know, everything that you just said, I think is the frustration that we face every day here in our country is, you know, the operators do try and do it right, despite what people think. They are trying to operate as cleanly as possible within the economics that they have and to be demonized when we are producing it way cleaner than most any other country out there. Uh, it, it's just, it's, it's maddening sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's where Colorado really, I mean, the interesting is, I mean, Colorado has had some of the most stringent air quality standards for production of and, and in the world, actually. Um, so it is a really unique place to come look at in terms of how it's done. Um, now, I, I think that, I, I wouldn't say that alone um, has, has impacted the, the space for production in Colorado, but I think there was always, there's been an uphill battle um, in Colorado for for increasing uh, production and getting permits and everything. Now, it's, it's, it's always been a harsher regulatory battle as the politics have influenced uh, where the state's going. Um, but I, I think it, given that you guys seem interested and we'll, we'll close it with this, um, but I, I think one, I hear your frustrations because obviously, you know, people listen to the podcast stuff. So I'm, I'm well aware of the industry's frustrations and I do think more has to be done uh, because I don't, I think the you know, we, we go back and forth on debating on, I think, as an industry, whether or not education is worth it. And I think, you know, maybe it won't work, but it has to be done. You know, we, ha we have to, uh, we can't just allow a, a, an emotional argument to win when there's so much at stake from a global standpoint um, that will probably force our hand. And I bring that up because, you know, if you've been following the stuff with Japan, um, so Japan, there was they came out last week, I believe, and, and or the week before, and they said that they wanted product. They wanted, they were talking about the importance of natural gas and the need to import liquefied natural gas. Um, and I believe that they sort of had, I, I, from what I have heard from various sources, is that Japan has been pushing the Biden administration to have in the G7 communique that the need for investing in oil and gas production globally. Um, and the Biden administration did not want that um, to be, they didn't want the oil and gas production um, in there. Now, so Japan kind of came out on their own and said, we need, we need, we're going to need natural gas for a while. So that, that's important. And then this article by um, Bloomberg says, G7 nations tussle over bid to phase out 
coal power by 2030. And so if you read it in the back end, I mean, it's very interesting because they're criticizing the G7 for not phasing out coal power because even the US and parts of Europe have been reluctant to say, yes, we're definitely gonna phase out coal power by 2030. Um, and uh, that's because, I mean, I, I think, you know, just pulling that out of their systems, they realize that's gonna be a problem. Um, but in Japan, it's interesting because obviously they're trying to bring back their nuclear. And I think the last part is interesting because it says, and I'm quoting this, amid Russia's war in Ukraine, Japan also has encouraged language supporting investments in oil and natural gas, to the point I was saying, to quote, bridge the gap, um, securing affordable energy supplies. Um, an effort that dovetails with an appeal by many US business groups. But several countries have pushed back with the, with the US encouraging a caveat that natural gas should be a transition energy source only, quote, for those countries that can afford it and are committed to a shift toward net zero energy. Um, and I think this gets really tricky with countries that, you know, who are the countries that are gonna lock onto this of these net zero emissions, which which we all know net zero by 2050 is, is a pretty illogical goal, but the folks gonna lock onto this because the, the UK has said they want everyone to sign on to what they did, which is legally binding to phase all this stuff out by 2030. Um, and we all know, I mean, it's sort of impossible to do without natural gas. And so I think this is where your business and the measurement piece becomes very important is that, you know, are, are we, you know, is, the, is Europe measuring everything? One, that would be interesting. But if we're measuring everything, if everyone else is doing this stuff, I mean, maybe there's opportunities for measurement abroad um, and everything. I guess you're measuring that flared gas in Iraq, so that would be interesting. Um, but it's just, it, it's just really critical because um, we're, we're playing whack-a-mole here and this natural gas, the more this, I think, is encouraged on the phase out of coal, the more there's gonna be a need for natural gas. And then when natural gas spikes, then you're gonna have a more of a need for oil and you're just gonna continue this inevitability, which is not something that's been, I think, well thought about in terms of how the, how the use cases and how the spikes are gonna go for natural gas. So just curious as your, your thoughts on that, how you guys think about it in your business. Andrew? I mean, you know, if you're asking, you know, how we look at international markets for, you know, measurement, you know, applicability, um, we're, always evaluating international markets specifically um, really interested in, in Canada, you know, uh, environmentally savvy markets. Um, so, you know, is that kind of along the lines of what you're asking is like our views on the international markets? I, I was a bit, it was kind of twofold in my head. It was a little broad. I was thinking uh, <laughs> one, yes, um, your views on the international market. And I was thinking creatively of bringing that back home to close of saying, um, are you guys, are you present in international markets? Are you interested? And are yeah. you um, in the companies that you're working with, whether it's for oil or gas on this measurement stuff, is there a, an agenda in mind with some of these companies to act for export? For, for export certification um, for countries that are importing it and want to have those certification. Is that something actually um, that you guys have those discussions? And I know that might be proprietary, but is that something that businesses, that's what they're thinking about as opposed to just ticking a box for state compliance or uh, US compliance? Yeah, so that makes more sense now. So, you know, I think Dave alluded to it earlier in the conversation, right? Like we've, we would love to be put and set up in a position like that, right? Like we are a testing inspection certification uh, company, compliance company that um, it's in our DNA to be there at that level, looking at, you know, being able to apply standard and be a, a certifying measurement body for exports. But the problem is very few of those right now are interested in real 
data. Like we've approached a couple companies that are very active in this and they're like, yeah, yeah, the data's great, but you know, these emissions factors are still the way of the way of the land. And what we'd really love for you guys to do is, you know, create a black box mystery algorithm with the SPL stamp of approval that says, you know, this is responsibly sourced gas, sell it at a premium to Germany, right? Um, we believe that the data is key as we've been talking about this whole uh, this whole conversation. The data is key and the, and, the, and the measurement is is really, you know, the, the, the truth. Uh, and until we've, you know, until more people I think appreciate that, um, we'll still, you know, be kind of working with our finger on, on the pulse in that area, Dave. I was just going to say, I love what you just said. And it's, it's so true. That one company, um, they wanted the SPL stamp because there's a weight that's carried behind that because of right. what we do and, and our size and our reputation, but they didn't want the actual data. They it's like, okay, wait a minute. Data. How can you get our certification without us providing the data that we feel comfortable giving that SPL right. stamp? It was hilarious. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's a great, uh, that's a great anecdote and point. Um, but so, I mean, do you have, have you had any foreign entity like European countries willing to, you know, coming to you or, or talking to you about that? Because I'm, this is where I say about the build out of the market that I get slightly anxious when you always see, and I, I know that it, there's always a chicken and egg thing. So, and, and that's how, that's how natural businesses work. So, you know, you start it and then you say, okay, it's here. And we've got the Europeans saying we're interested in all the certification, but you also have the Europeans very hesitant on signing these long-term LNG contracts. And so you really do have the market in kind of a, a very tricky situation. I know we've kind of focused heavily on natural gas uh, because, but I mean, obviously oil matters a ton and we haven't heard nearly the pressure abroad on, on oil because nobody's willing to say, hey, um, America, can you please pull that this few million barrels a day off the global market? Um, no, they, they don't want to do that, but they're willing to pressure us on that gas because it's it's only a 50 BCF a day market right now for the water, LNG on the water. So it's something slightly more nimble, but I, that's why I'm just curious of if there's any, it, I don't know if they've reached out to you directly, but if unless th those things are happening and they're saying, hey, you know, Germany or whoever, we like the SPL seal of approval, we'll take that and this will work. You could really develop that market and then help these guys, you know, get that that molecule to market. Yeah, without breaking confidence, Trisha, most of the conversations we've had have been North American centric. Okay. Okay. That's fair. Um and I'll have to find somebody maybe on the on the global side to to touch base on that. But and we I mean, I think global I think we have heard the European Commission talk about this stuff, whether or not they implemented, and clearly they didn't. Um, this is something I always bring up is people always say, where's Europe going with their energy policy? And yes, they say a lot, but when if they can't access the correct fuels, they tend to just do whatever they need to do to turn the lights on, yep. which is what we saw over the course of the last a couple of years. So um, yeah, that's I, I appreciate your, your candidness. Yeah, no problem. All right. Well, we have um, hit on uh, 58 minutes here, so we should probably close up. And um, But I really appreciate all of your guys' time. If you have any last-minute thoughts, I'd be happy to hear them. But thank you guys so much for coming on the podcast. Appreciate the opportunity for, for you to let us come on. And, yeah, like I – I hope uh, I'll get to see you here. We're going to, you know, you're going to be doing the Rocky Mountain Measurement Society. Absolutely. Uh, doing their luncheon here later this month. So excited to meet you in person and, and uh, keep the conversation going. You, you do a great job advocating for the industry. And uh, and it was a real privilege to be on. Yeah. Thank you. Likewise. Well, awesome. Well, it was really. 
Sorry, go I'm, ahead. I just say, uh, just echoing what he says, really appreciate the opportunity. Uh, you're a great voice for the industry. Uh, we need more folks like you. So thank you for what you're doing. Well, I, I appreciate that immensely. And I am look, I'm really looking forward to the Rocky Mountain, Rocky Mountain Measurement Society, um, which is just a, a great, the nerdiness of this business is fantastic. Um, and I'd love to be involved in this. And we, we didn't talk about China on this podcast at all. So I will make sure in that April 27th meeting with the Rocky Mountain Measurement Society, we will be talking about China plenty. Um, so don't worry about that. Um, and I did talk about it in the last, last podcast in, in depth. So, um, but thank you guys so much. Really appreciate it. And absolutely look forward to uh, the meeting and, um, and any other events we have upcoming in the future. Maybe with the Gas Processing Association that we talked about earlier. Absolutely. Awesome. Sounds good. All right. Well, thanks, guys. Bye. Thanks, Trisha. Take care.